Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid. Featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We are recording Sunday evening after the Red Sox fall to the Giants. They lose two out of three in the series. Really difficult loss on Sunday. And the Red Sox had a real golden opportunity to win this series. We'll get into that in a second. But we're also going to get into some notes from Patriots training camp. I am flying solo today. So we'll get into the Ezekiel Elliott situation. Are the Patriots actually going to land him? Do they need more depth at the running back position? Plus some good signs we've seen early in training camp with one player in particular. I want to get into that as well. Plus, I'm going to rank my top five Boston athletes to watch since the turn of the century. So this is not the best athletes in Boston since the turn of the century. This is my favorite five athletes to watch since the turn of the century. We'll do that in a little bit, get into the trading deadline in Major League Baseball as well as we've got some big moves. Some big fish have come off the board so far. We'll get into what this all means for the Red Sox. But where I want to start is just the fact that the Red Sox go to San Francisco you're feeling really good after the Friday night game where Tristan Casas hit a ball 435 feet, an absolute bomb. You're feeling really optimistic that you'll at least win one of these games, whether it be on Saturday or whether it be on Sunday. And unfortunately, you can't do it in either game. And I just want to start with this. Rafael Devers is making $330 million, okay? And I get it. You're not paying him to be a defensive player. You're paying him to be an offensive player and be one of the best sluggers in the sport. And we kind of had this conversation with Milliken the other day. The defense is unacceptable right now. You look at that fifth inning. You have a runner on first base with no outs. Taylor made double play ball, and he boots it, right? So you put your team in a bad position if you're Rafael Devers. Now, eventually, of course, the Giants would score a run there to make it a 2 to nothing game. But you're looking at two outs, nobody on base, you get out of that inning. And instead, you allow another run to score to make it two to nothing at that particular point in the game. And the thing that I just, I can't get over with Rafael Devers is we continue to see this year after year. This guy is a great baseball player, great player, unbelievable player. And the most aggravating part is he has the skill set athletically, right, to be able to make these plays. He gets to a lot of balls that a lot of guys don't. But it's just the fact that it's these mental lapses It's this lack of concentration. This cannot continue to happen. You look at it now this season. 
He has now made 13 errors after the one he made today at third base. That is the most among any third baseman. It's embarrassing. We were having these conversations about Rafael Devers a couple of years ago. This should not continue to happen, and it keeps happening. And you look at the numbers in totality. He's now at minus seven defensive runs save at third base. Only one guy is worse than that. So it's just one of these things where I get it. He is making a ton of money, and you're paying him to hit. But the reality of the situation is this. He's supposed to be one of the leaders of this team, and clearly he is one of the leaders of this team, and he's done a great job after he had some bad luck early in the season with the bat, but the reality is this. You cannot continue to boot simple plays, and we saw it in the Braves series, and luckily that didn't end up hurting the Red Sox in terms of they took both the games in that series, but we continue to see it with Rafael Devers where he has just got to be better in the field. It's just so damn aggravating, and now that he's got that money, it's really, from my perspective, these lapses, it's unprofessional. He should not be making those at this point in his career. Love the player, love the guy, but at this point in the in his career, it's unacceptable. I'm not telling you he needs to be Nolan Arenado at third base or something along those lines. It's just, can you not butcher the ball consistently and can you just pay attention? Enough with these lapses in judgment in terms of what he's doing defensively. One of the other things he keeps doing is backing up. Now, this one wasn't a backup situation. He just kind of reached over to his left side Instead of just moving over, just move over a little bit. You easily make the play. It's just laziness from my perspective. Okay, so that's one thing that needed to be addressed. He's got to be better in the field, and it's an issue right now. It is. I mean, there's no way around it. His defense has been even worse since the All-Star break. All right, another thing I want to get to is in the 10th inning of this game, okay, the Red Sox, of course, you have the zombie runner at second base, and you have Ref Snyder goes down on strikes. He swung at a sweeper that wasn't even close, okay? And then a rare time Turner didn't come through. We'll get into Turner in a second here, where he flies out weakly to right field, and then they walk Raffi. Obviously, they're going to do that with first base open. And then Chang goes down on four pitches, okay? So a couple of things here. First of all, when that happens, you think you're going to lose the game. Now, the Red Sox didn't immediately lose the game, but you got to score at least one run there. Ref Snyder's got to be more disciplined. We know that he's great against lefties, not great against righties. He's righty on the mound at that particular point in time. And you're not going to blame Turner. He's been one of the best hitters in the sport since the start of June. More on that in a second here. But the thing that stuck out to me with that is, okay, yeah. You know who should be hitting behind Rafael Devers there? Trevor Story. And then you feel a lot better about your opportunity because Story was their best hitter with runners in scoring position last year. You feel a lot better about your chances there with Yu Chang at the plate, or you feel better with Story at the plate compared to Yu Chang, right? And now if you look at it on the season, I cannot wait to see Trevor Story back on this team because I give Yu Chang a ton of credit because he certainly has stabilized the defense there. Nobody would dispute that whatsoever. I give him a ton of credit, all the credit in the world. But the reality is he entered Sunday hitting 163 with a 209 on base percentage. The guy can't fucking hit. He's giving you nothing at the dish whatsoever. And if you look at the Red Sox as it pertains to the shortstop position in general, the numbers are ugly. 218 average, which is 25th. 274 in base percentage, which is 27th. 326 slug, which is 26. And the OPS is 600, which is 26. So you have no offense from that position whatsoever. Now, it's not as bad as early on the season when you were getting no offense and the defense was bad with Kike Hernandez. At least you're getting the quality defense from Yu Chang. But at that point in the game, I'm thinking to myself, well, who's hitting behind Rafi right now? Oh, yeah, it's Yu Chang. Okay, so this inning's going to end. You're not going to get a run when you have this great opportunity, of course, with the zombie runner. And unfortunately, Yu Chang doesn't come through, but that should be Trevor Story. So at least you're going to get Trevor Story back in the near future. Okay, another thing I wanted to mention here is, so after the top of the 10th, you're thinking to yourself, 
okay, this game's over. The Red Sox are probably going to lose, right? Unfortunately, you can't come through. Usually, I always think about it this way. You need to score two runs. If you're hitting in the top half of the 10th inning, you need to score two runs. The Red Sox scored no runs, and they still had a chance to win it because Chris Martin was great again. He comes in, and they walk the leadoff batter Wade to create a double play opportunity. So you get Davis to ground out, but it's hit too softly to turn two, just 61.7 miles an hour off the bat. This is what Martin does. So (laughs) the one time you would have liked the grounder to be hard, Martin's so good at inducing soft contact, you can't turn the double play there. Then they walk Conforto, and then Martin gets Matos to ground out on a two-seamer, and then he gets Bailey to fly out on a splitter just 75 miles per hour off the bat. The guy is absolutely nails. So he actually bails you out of that inning, right? Where you're thinking to yourself, I thought, and maybe you disagree with me, after the 10th inning, the top of the 10th, you think the game is over, and here we go. Martin keeps you in the game. And just on a positive note with Martin, you look at his numbers since coming off the IL on May 1st, 167 ERA, that's eighth among relievers, 3.2% walk rate, that's second among relievers, and the 28.3% hard hit rate is 17th out of 164 relievers. The guy has been absolutely incredible for this team. So... A huge performance that will be forgotten because this guy got you out of a huge jam that is obviously created by the zombie runner, but he had to get out of that inning to keep you in the game to extend the game he did, and the Red Sox can't capitalize on that situation, right? Because you look at the 11th inning, Yoshida had a rare bad day at the plate. He was bad today. He flies out, Wong's down, and I'm not blaming Yoshida for this. I'm just saying it was a bad day and a rare bad day for Yoshida at the plate. Wong's down on three pitches. Verdugo flies out on a curveball like this would have been a big opportunity for and I know he had a hit earlier on in the game for Verdugo to come through right because he's been slumping for the majority of July last in all of Major League Baseball and hitting in July so then of course the Red Sox end up giving it up in the seventh inning but it's just the point or excuse me giving up in the bottom of the 11th inning but it's just the point where your guy gets you back in the game in Chris Martin and you can't capitalize the following half inning and the other thing that sticks out to you in this game Rafi's defense uh the other thing that sticks out to you in this game, Rafi's defense, the inability to hit at the shortstop position, and this team all weekend long, they didn't hit nearly enough in this series, right? I mean, you think about it, even the game they win, they only score the three runs. They only score the two runs on Saturday night where they score them both in the top of the ninth inning. Thank you very much, Justin Turner. And then today, <laughs> it's Justin Turner again coming up with a critical hit in this game. And Duvall, of course... Turner with a home run, but Duvall with a home run as well. So they didn't hit enough in this series to win, right? But they still had chances. The defense has got to be better. And overall, you just look at this team. You had a really big chance because of the fact that you had both Houston and Toronto lose today. So you had an opportunity to cut this to one and a half games in the wild card situation. Instead, it's now two and a half. So you had an opportunity to make that up. And unfortunately, you blow this away because of bad defense and you couldn't hit situationally. I'm still very high on this team right now. I still think they should be buyers. We'll get into that in a second at the trading deadline, but it's just, they should have won the series. They really should have. And just to sort of put a positive spin on the end of the Giants series, man, Justin Turner has just been incredible. When you talk about the huge hit on Wednesday to give the Red Sox the lead for good, he has the huge hit on Saturday to get them back into the game before Jansen gives it up, right? And then Sunday afternoon, you do it again. You got the Submariner out there and Tyler Rogers, Sox down two to one, He gets a bad slider, middle down, easy for him to launch that thing, hits it out of the ballpark, 104.7 off the bat, makes it 3-2. And of course, Winkowski gives up a run in the bottom of the inning. You had Duran, I thought he had a chance to make that play. It felt like he slightly misread that at the end. And then unfortunately, the 
Winkowski induces some soft contact on the run that they score, but it's kind of a no man's land where he's trying to get it. Casas is coming in. You weren't going to cut down the run at the plate. So some unfortunate luck when it comes to that. But just getting back to Turner for a second here, you look at since the start of June, he leads all of Major League Baseball in RBIs with 49. Entering Sunday during that stretch, 315, which is 14th in Major League Baseball, 924 OPS, 19th. He's hitting righties, as evident by the home run there. 44 of 140 during this stretch, 315 of 543 slug. Lefties 318 and a 614 slug. He is impossible to handle right now. So this is one of the real bright spots. They've had a lot of bright spots have the Red Sox this season. But if you told me you were going to get this level of production from Justin Turner, I would have said that seems a little bit optimistic. I always loved bringing in Turner because he's such a professional hitter. But man, he's been even better than advertised. But bottom line with the series, the Red Sox should have at least taken two out of three. And unfortunately, you had good pitching this weekend. Despite the fact that you had to do a bullpen game and this one on Sunday, you still had an opportunity to win this game. And unfortunately, the Red Sox, they just couldn't come through. Couldn't come through. And even I would look at it long term and say, yeah, Heim Bloom should still be in buy mode as we approach the trading deadline, which I'll get into a second here. But it's just when you have these games where you're battling for a wild card spot, it's just these little things that you can't do. And I look at the leader of the team, Rafael Devers, or at least one of the leaders of the team. He's got to be better when it comes to that. So unfortunately, that's how it ends. The Red Sox drop two of three to the Giants. All right, I do want to get into the trading deadline as we now get closer to the Red Sox having to make some decisions here. And we are seeing basically the Texas Rangers are going all in. And they make the big move on Saturday night to get Max Scherzer. And they get him from the Mets. They get Jordan Montgomery in a trade. Jeff Passan had it today. They He comes over from the Cardinals. So if you look at what Texas is doing right now, I kind of wanted to look at this and how this sort of relates to the Red Sox. So... Scherzer gets dealt for the third overall prospect in the Rangers organization, Luis Angel Acuna. That is Ronald Acuna Jr.'s younger brother. Now, Scherzer then opts into the contract for 2024. So what does this mean for the Red Sox? Well, first of all, I don't really see this setting the market for any deal that the Red Sox would make. Like, I don't think we should look at this as something similar to anything that the Red Sox would be doing. Baseball America, by the way, if you look at what they gave up for Max Scherzer, Acuna was ranked 87th on their midseason list, and baseball perspectives had him at 59. Okay, so this is a really good prospect. So you're giving up, essentially, your third overall prospect for Max Scherzer. And I know we can all say, hey, it's Max Scherzer. You do that in a heartbeat. Well, (laughs) we just saw the Red Sox beat him up last weekend at Fenway. And if you look at Scherzer this season, he has a 401 ERA, which is 50th out of 96 starters that have thrown at least 80 innings. His striker rate is still good, but it's the lowest of his career at 27.3. Now, that's a better than average number. 25% is average, but it's not Max Scherzer, right? And also, you look at the hard hit rate, the worst of his career at 38.3%, which is still pretty good, 54th percentile, but it's not elite like it's been in the past, the worst of his career. So he's not the elite pitcher we once saw. So if you look at the velocity on his heater, it's south of 94 miles an hour for the first time since 14. And it's getting hit. Eight bombs, 271 average, 471 slug. And the thing is, it's all in the air. The launch angle is 24 degrees. Velocity on a slider is south of 85 miles an hour for the first time since 2011. So that's dipped as well. And that's getting hit. 595 slug, nine home runs against that pitch. So the velocity being down on the heater and the slider, it's led to a lot of damage, right? 23 bombs Max Scherzer has given up this season. Only four starters have given up more. So the Rangers are taking a massive chance here where they're giving up their third third overall prospect for a guy that's aging 
And there are real signs that he's not the same guy as I told you with the velocity. So if you look at the type of money that they've given out, this is why they're doing it, right? You look at the Rangers, they're sixth in payroll. Seager is dealing with an injury again. He's at 10 for 325. DeGrom's five for 185. He's done for the season. Shocker there. Simeon's at seven for 175. John Gray's four for 56. And Nate Valdi is two for 35 with an option. So you have a lot, a lot of guys making a ton of money with this team. So with them, they have a clear edict. They have to win now. So let's go out there and get Max Scherzer. And to me, and I'll get into the Montgomery piece of this, I don't think this makes them the clear favorite in the American League. It certainly helps. Getting Max Scherzer and Jordan Montgomery in less than 24 hours, that certainly helps this team. But I just look at some of the other factors here with this Red Sox team and how this shouldn't play into anything they do in terms of the deadline. First of all, outline with Scherzer. He's not the same guy right now. So there's always a chance like, okay, new scenery, he gets better. But I really wouldn't bet on that if I was a Rangers fan, just because of the fact that it's the velocity. I don't see with all the innings, all the mileage with Max Scherzer, I don't see him getting to Texas and all of a sudden the velocity is up on the fastball and the slider. So I don't see this as this definitive checkmate move at the trading deadline where it's like, we get Max Scherzer, we're the favorites. Now, if you want to add the Montgomery piece and say that, I still would disagree with you. But overall, this is not a complete game changer like it would have been a couple of years ago. In terms of the prospect, he's a top 100 guy and he's third in their organization and you traded him for a 39-year-old. This is just not something that Heim Bloom would ever do. He wouldn't operate this way, right? It's just not in his ethos, right? It doesn't fit the plan that he wants to have. If he wants to go after a pitcher, he wants it to be a guy that had, especially if he's giving up the third overall prospect like we saw in this trade, the third overall prospect, he would do that for a tradable piece, right? whether it's a Dylan Cease, who we talked about the other day with Milliken, but this type of trade, Heimblum would not make this. And quite frankly, I don't. I wouldn't make this move either if I was Heimblum. I would not be going after 39-year-old Max Scherzer that looks like he may be over the hill right now. Sometimes it just ends really, really quickly for these guys. So I wouldn't be shocked if that's the case for Max Scherzer. So just on this front, I don't think this is the definitive move that has changed the American League landscape where we went from, hey, it's wide open to now there's a heavy favorite. Now, the Jordan Montgomery thing, this is a guy that I would have been interested in if I was the Red Sox. I understand why Bloom isn't, right? Because he laid out what he wanted, right? I mean, this Bloom kind of pulled the Dave Dombrowski here. Not that he gave away what he was going to get, but the point being is Dave Dombrowski told us the type of guys that he wanted to get, and Bloom said he wants controllable pitchers. And Jordan Montgomery, as much as I love him, and I told you when we did the podcast a couple of weeks ago about the Red Sox should go after a starter, I would go after Montgomery but it just didn't fit the timeline for the Red Sox because he's a free agent after the end of the season. So Bloom is not going to make a deal like this, right? He's not giving up good prospects for a pitcher that could just walk at the end of the season. That's just not the way that he wants to operate this organization. And you can agree or disagree with that, but I'm just telling you that's the philosophy of the organization, right? And Montgomery's been pretty good lately. Now, his last two starts have not been great, but four of his five starts in July, he went six or more innings. I still have no idea why the Yankees traded him last year for Harrison Bader. Makes no sense to me whatsoever. But since the start of June, among starters, he's six in baseball with a 237 ERA. So even despite the two tough ones against the Cubs, he's still a really good pitcher. Now, the good news for the Red Sox is they have seen him a bunch of times. Now, he's a good pitcher, but they've seen him a bunch as well. And I just look at it, this as the type of guy that can certainly go out there and give the Rangers length. They need this right now. And that's where I kind of wish the Red Sox could have got him from that perspective, where it's like, okay... If you look at this team right now, you have, if you keep Crawford in the rotation, right? You have Bayo, Paxson, Crawford. Sale's basically going to be a sprinter when he comes back because we basically, 
He could come back for that Tigers series, but if he comes back for the Tigers series, you're talking about three, four innings. So he may not even be a starter. He may be like a bulk guy. You may have an opener, then bring in Chris Hill, or he can start the first and pitch three to four innings or so. But just penciling in another starter would have just made things so much easier for the team. And they can still do this, right? I mean, they can still add a starter here. I mean, we're we're not at the point where the trading deadline's over. It's just Montgomery would have been an interesting target for them to eat up innings. And you think about it, then you could have had a pen of the back-end guys, Martin Jansen, Schreiber's getting right, and then you look at Hope coming back, Whitlaw coming back. i rather those guys be in sort of a bullpen role rather than a starting rotation role, which I think those are kind of the questions you have going forward with this team is sort of if they don't get a starter, how do, the thing, how do things align? But Montgomery, that stuff, I did not see that coming for the Rangers. Now, the Scherzer thing, it felt like, okay, there's some legs there, but them getting Montgomery as well, it's a really nice move, so... I don't look at them as like this death star. Like year, for years, we looked at the Astros as this death star. I guess in the National League, sometimes you looked at the Dodgers that way, although the Dodgers only won one World Series during that stretch. Like right now, the, Braver, the Braves are the favorite. Like that looks like a death star. I don't see the Rangers that way. And the Red Sox tend to beat up on good pitching to begin with. They beat up on Nate. They beat up on Scherzer. I don't even know if he's a great pitcher at this particular point in time. But these are really nice moves for the Rangers. The thing for them is they're going to win quickly here because if they don't win quickly here, they get a lot of money on the books going forward. And you basically gave up prospects for a rental. And look, the flag will hang forever in Texas. You look at it, you go back to what, 2010, 2011. They were so close to winning World Series, especially in the year against the Cardinals, right? The David Freeze year. They were so close. They were a strike away and they just couldn't get it done. So you can totally understand how that ownership group would be desperate. And they got Bruce Bochy, one of the best managers in the game. So you got to give them credit where... For a while there, it looked like they were the overwhelming favorite, and now they were looking, I don't want to say wobbly, but they weren't looking like that definitive favorite, and they're trying to do their best to get there. So I give them credit. I just don't think that this makes them this unbeatable team in the postseason. So that brings me to James Paxton, which I think is a fascinating situation. So Chris Cotillo had an article up after the game on Saturday night about Paxton's thoughts as we get closer to the deadline. This is what Paxton had to say. Quote, I'd love to stay. I'd love to fight for this team and get into the postseason. That's what we want to do here, end quote. I think it'll be great to get past, meaning the deadline, so that it's not a thing that's being talked about in the locker room and stuff like that. It's a thing, but we feel good about where we're at right now. We've got a great group of guys, and we're looking forward to making a push for the postseason. Okay, so this is, at the word I used earlier is fascinating. That's what I'd say about this whole decision that Bloom and the front office have to make on James Paxton, because there's so many layers to it. So think about this. You could get some cost-controlled major leaguers or prospects or some combination of both for Paxton because that's how well he's thrown the ball. And so first of all, you have to remember this. He exercised that $4 million player option. And remember, the team had denied the two options at 13 mil, which they had to do based on the injury history of the player. But he had that weird contract, so he probably could have gotten more elsewhere on the open market, but he said, no, I'll play for the Red Sox on that $4 million option because he even gave the Red Sox medical staff a lot of credit for the way that he's dealt with these injuries or the way that they've helped him deal with these injuries over the past couple of seasons here. Okay, so Paxton, by the way, you think about it, just one game in 2021 before the Tommy John, and then he missed all of 2022 as well with the Red Sox. Basically, they paid him to rehab, could never make it all the way back because then he had the lat situation as well. And of course, he got the late start even entering this year. So from a practical side of things, you could understand moving on from Paxton because that package of either prospects and cost-controlled major leaguers, hypothetically, would provide more value to the organization going forward, right? In terms of 
what James Paxton is going to give you over the next couple of years, he may not even be with the club after this team, compared to a package of cost-controlled players at the major league level or high minor league players, so to speak. You could understand why the Red Sox would make a deal like that for the future of the organization, especially you could understand why Haim Bloom would do that considering he's all about long-term sustainability, right? But if you look at it, even though I thought against San Francisco, did not have his best stuff. He had real issues with his command of that game. He still was able to give you five innings and just one earned. He pitched out of a ton of jams. Of course, Jansen gave up the bomb to J.D. Davis that after the Red Sox had tied the game 2-2 to in that ninth inning. But nonetheless, you get the point. Even when Paxton wasn't good in terms of the command, he wasn't sharp in that game, he still gave you five innings of one run ball. So he was really good in that game despite, I shouldn't say really good, he found a way to get through it even though he didn't have his stuff, right? So now if you take the totality of what he's meant to this team, since the 12th of May, when he made his season debut, it's 70 innings. Only Bayo has pitched more for the Red Sox at 72 and a third. Crawford is third on the list at 51 and a third. So the gap between Paxton and the third guy in Crawford in innings is 18 and two thirds. So he's been incredibly valuable just being able to, now he's thrown the ball well, but he's also just eating up innings, right? The five innings was a surprise. He usually gives you six or seven, right? This is a massive drop off, right? In terms of going from your second to your third guy. And if you just look at from a value standpoint, in terms of fan graphs war, he's at 1.6 wins above replacement since he came off the injured list. That's number one of the Red Sox pitchers. Number two on that list is Bayo at 1.0. So that's a wide gap between Paxton and Bayo just because of the amount of innings and the successful outings that he's had for this team. 334 ERA, which is outstanding. And the strikeout rate is at 28.4%, which is 15th among starters since he came off the IL. So he's been really good. He has been a known commodity for this team since he started that first game where it's sort of like jaw-dropping how hard he was throwing the ball, 96, 97, 98. You're like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. Like, I, I didn't know what to expect with Paxton, right? We talked to Core about this a couple of weeks ago. But what we found out about Paxton, this is a guy that you can depend on every fifth day. Even when he doesn't have it, he's going to give you five innings and give you just the one earned like he just did on Saturday night, right? So the Red Sox, they have a legit chance to get into the playoffs. So unless the Red Sox are getting another starter in return that's as good as Paxton, then moving Paxton... Makes sense long term if you're getting a guy back like that's as good of him, but it's awfully tough to sell this to the clubhouse, right? We're like, okay, like I can totally understand it practically. You get prospects and if you're adding another starter, okay, he takes the place of Paxton and you got value for Paxton. But I just think from a human level and Hein Bloom has had issues with this at the trading deadlines where he wasn't in Houston last year. Guys were upset two years ago because they wanted somebody sooner than Schwarber. Now Schwarber turned out to be the best bat that was moved at the trading deadline but they had to wait to get him into the lineup, right? So I just don't know how you sell this to the clubhouse moving on from a guy that you could argue since he came off the injury list, he's been your most valuable starter. Even if you want to argue Bayo has been better, Paxson has been more valuable by the numbers and by basically everything you look at in terms of just going out there posting every fifth day. It's been Bayo and it's been Paxson. Okay, and it would also be one thing if you say, hey, we're bringing in Starter X, whoever it is, and I'll get into that in a little bit here. And we have Sale and we have Hoke and we have Whitlock all coming back, right? We're like, okay, you can totally understand this you, when you have enough guys coming back. But here's the problem. I love what Sale did earlier this season. He was dependable, but he's coming off another injury. This time it's a shoulder situation. Who knows how he responds? This is Chris Sale. We've seen it throughout his career. This guy is always hurt. Now, I feel good about it just 
My own thought on this is I feel like he's going to come back and he's going to be effective for this team, but I can't tell you that with any sort of certainty based on what we've seen from him in the past. But remember, if you think about it, they mentioned that they could bring him up for the Tiger series, which would mean what? If he comes up for the Tiger series, he's clearly not going to be fully built up. Now, we heard Sale the other day say he'd be willing to be an opener, but at that point, you're looking at what, three to four innings as an opener, or maybe he goes behind an opener, he's sort of the bulk guy, gives you three to four innings. But at that point, he's not a full-blown starter yet. But I want that to be the case. I want them to bring him up earlier because, look, you've already signed this contract for they could get him out there and get some value from the player. Now, the other thing is I don't want Hulk or Whitlock in the rotation. We've been over this, right? Tanner Hulk's an elite bullpen weapon. In his career, the batting average out of the bullpen against is 206 with a 297 on base percentage against and a 273 slug. The guy's been elite as a reliever. And those are really, really good numbers. As a starter, the ERA is just south of four. So not like bad, but the second time through the order, it's 272 with a 715 OPS. The third time through, it's 271, 944. So I'd just rather him be that weapon out of the bullpen where we've seen he's been really successful doing that. Garrett Whitlock is an elite bullpen weapon. You go back to the 2021 season, 196 ERA, that was eighth among relievers. As a starter this year, the ERA is north of five, and I worry about the health. Like, are we sure he can handle it, especially now where you've had two separate issues with Garrett Whitlock as it pertains to the elbow situation? Do you really want to have him go extended innings? I would just rather him be a bullpen weapon as well, right? So my point with all this is if you trade Paxton, even if you get a starter back here, you're still going to be short starters, right? It's going to take sale a while before he gets to that six, seven inning threshold. It's not going to happen right away. And I know the Red Sox... We're gearing up, right, where you look at this right now, they're gearing up to compete, but, and they're also gearing up for 2024, right? That was supposed to be like the start of when this team really becomes relevant and competing for championships again. But organizationally right now, it's just tough to say, yeah, we're going to trade Paxton. We'll see who we get in return. And we're going to depend on all these guys coming back from injuries. Like you have a chance right now to at least make a run, try to get into the postseason and there's no guarantee on the prospects you're trading when you're bringing them back for James Paxton. If I'm behind Bloom and Company, what happens if you trade away Paxton and you're still duct taping this t- thing together as it pertains to your starting rotation, your pitching in general? What happens if Paxton <laughs> goes somewhere else, you trade him to a contender, and he's doing what he did for you or even a little bit better? And then you don't make it into the playoffs, right? It just looks really, really bad for you. And I get it long term. You may say, hey, we love this kid coming up in a year or we love the major leaguer we got back. But it's just going to be a tough thing to sell, not only to the clubhouse, but secondarily to the fan base and the ownership. If you had that guy, you had a chance to make the playoffs. It's tough to trade him unless you know exactly that the guy you're getting back is at least even to Paxton and you know what you're getting with the rest of these guys. And I don't know how you could guarantee you know, what you're getting with Hulk, what you're getting with Whitlock, and what you're getting with Chris Sale, as those guys are all coming back from injuries. All right, so one of the other things that Bloom has mentioned, and we continue to bring up this theme, is the controllable pieces. So the second base situation is certainly something that could be addressed as well, because if you look at Christian Arroyo this season, he's not hitting lefties at all, 183, 197 on base percentage, and that's south of 200 against lefties, 333 and a 530 OPS, and what we're seeing right now is Justin Turner is the guy that's playing when there's a lefty on the mound because Turner can hit lefties, he can hit righties, but he's playing second base just because Christian Arroyo, a right-handed hitter, can't hit left-handed pitching. Now, Arroyo has been better as it pertains to the batting average against righties at 272, but the OPS is south of 700 at 698, and the slugging percentage is 392. So it's not like he's been a great 
hitter against right-handed pitching either. But I come back to this because I rather Justin Turner just DH, and I know he made a nice play in the game the other day, right? A really nice play. But you rather Turner DH than have to play second base. So when you look at the Cardinals, who are clearly in sell mode right now, Tommy Edmonds making his way back from a wrist injury, and he's on a rehab assignment. So you feel like, all right. He's coming back and you could get good value because he's coming back from the injury and he's actually having somewhat of a down year. And for High and Bloom, this is a controllable piece under club control through the 2025 season. So theoretically, if you made a deal for Edmund, you'd have him this year as you chase down a wild card spot. And then you'd have him next year and the year after that as well, if you want to have him that long, right? And if you're worried about long term with York and Meyer and Story, this is what you actually want as an organization. You want depth in that middle infield, right? Where you can then go a lot of different directions. Let's say the hypothetical is, hey, you know what? We can get a pitcher with club control. We mentioned that earlier in terms of that's what Bloom's looking for. And I don't know if it'd be Dylan Cease, but down the road, hypothetically, like Dylan Cease becomes available at some point and it doesn't feel like he's going to be moved before the deadline. But if he's moved, say, hypothetically next year in the offseason, would you find yourself in a situation where you say, well, if we feel good about Edmund, if he comes here and he plays well, we're in a situation where Marcelo Meyer is eventually coming up. Story can push over to second base. And now Nick York, middle infield prospect that's most entities have him third overall. OK, then we could feel good about moving on from him because we're bringing in a pitcher that would provide value for the organization. Or you could just say, hey, let's recoup some value on Edmund. And if we don't want to move on from York, Edmund will still have value down the road where we could use him, whether it's for a pitcher down the road. I'm not saying a star level pitcher, but some depth within the organization, whether it's a back end starter or it's a reliever, whatever the case may be, depending on what the package is that you totally put together. But this would make sense when it comes to that in terms of getting a controllable piece. Right. So despite the down year, if you look at Edmund so far against righties in his career, he's 285 batting averages and 822 OPS. So he's a guy theoretically that has hit historically better than Christian Arroyo against righties, so you could play him. And he's a really good defensive player, and you know he can deliver against righties. And I'm just not super committed to Arroyo long-term. I just, I don't think Christian Arroyo is a great player. And if you can bring in a guy like Tommy Edmond with this level of athleticism, I would certainly kick the tires on this one. If you look at 2022, 614 and two-thirds innings, 12 defensive runs saved, okay? Which... That was third in Major League Baseball among second basemen. The two guys in front of him played 1,100 innings and over 1,000 innings. And the two guys fourth and fifth that he was just ahead of over 1,200 innings and over 1,000 innings. So he would have been way up there. Like he would have had the most defensive run saved. So if you think about this, he's a guy that can certainly come in and you say, hey, okay, we get him new scenery situation coming from a team that wasn't playing for anything, getting into a team that's starting to get into a situation where they're competing for a playoff spot. He's a guy that, despite the numbers not being great this season, we know historically he's at least had success against right-handed pitching, and he can provide really good defense. I remember watching the series last year at Fenway Park. I was amazed at how well this guy, and he can play short as well. I was amazed how well he can play defensively. And you have a middle infield of Trevor Story when he comes back to go along with Tommy Edmond. That's a really good defensive unit there. And like I said, I keep coming back. to I, I don't mean to like crap on Arroyo because I wanted to trust him as a player. I just don't. So if you can upgrade the second base position, to me, Edmund is a clear upgrade over Christian Arroyo. I would do that in a heartbeat. And that's a guy that's cost control. Speaking of cost control, if you look at the Guardians, they could be in a situation where despite the fact that they're still in it in the Central, that's a terrible division. You have to know that you're not winning anything of significance if you were Cleveland. I mean, this. I know I said get into the dance, see what happens. Cleveland is not nearly talented enough to do that. And one of their cost control pitchers, Aaron Savalli, 
He is arbitration eligible in 24-25. So theoretically, this year, the next two. This is the type of move, like we mentioned how Montgomery and Scherzer don't make sense for the way Bloom wants to build this thing. Savali does, because since coming back, and he's been really good, you got the club control for this year, two years after this. And if you look at it, since he came off the IL at the beginning of June, 10 starts, 247 ERA, which is eighth best during that stretch, a 106 whip, which is 16th best. The hard hit rate, the ball's off the bat 95 plus, 33.3 in terms of the ball's off the bat 95 plus. That's the seventh best during that stretch. 4.2% of his balls that have been batted have been barreled up. That's fifth best during that stretch. Good numbers against righties and lefties, 214 against lefties, 209 against righties. And lefties hit just 188 against his cutter, 195 against his curveball. So he's got a way to get out lefties and righties. So this is the type of guy that, okay, it could make you feel uncomfortable dipping into your prospect pool, but these are the type of players I could see eventually Bloom going after as it pertains to starting pitchers, and I do think they're going to need to start to get some of these controllable pieces, because even if you look at it going forward, is if you look at heading into the future with this organization, it needs starting pitching still, right? Like, yes, you have a young stud in Bayo, that's great, and we all love Bayo, but if you look at it after that, everybody else is a question. Hauk? Whitlock, so far, they haven't proven that they're starters at the major league level. Winkowski is way better as a reliever. I wouldn't expect he's eventually going to be a starter again. He's a reliever. Then you look at Paxton. <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen in the next few days. And we certainly don't know what's going to happen after this. Sale, we know the history there. So if you can get a major league pitcher, cost control, club control, these are the type of targets that I would expect Bloom to be going after. The Kellers, the ceases and now the Savalis. if he becomes available that's a guy that i would certainly go after all right a lot more to get into coming up next i want to get into the sum all right a lot more to get into coming up next i do want to get into the patriots because we have some newsworthy items there could they be getting ezekiel elliott the u.s team is taking on the world and you can take home bonus bets every time they win with FanDuel. because right now new customers get 100 in bonus bets guaranteed plus another $10 in bonus bets for every USA win. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app and sign up between now and August 3rd. Then place your first $5 bet to unlock your bonus bets. That way, you'll be all set to bet on everything from total goals to player props all tournament long. However you want to play, don't miss your chance to get $10 in bonus bets for every USA win, plus $100 in bonus bets guaranteed. Make every moment more with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets which expire in seven days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So a couple of newsworthy items from the Patriots. So Ezekiel Elliott met with the Pats on Saturday. We saw those pictures with Mac Jones, which... They were sitting on the same side of the restaurant. I don't know what's going on there. Same side of the booth, I should say. So if you look at Zeke, he's coming off a career low in terms of yards per carry at 3.8. And Dallas last year, actually, they blocked pretty well. ESPN's team run block win rate, they were seventh in that. In terms of pro football focus rankings, they were 11th in run block rate. Now, he did force 33 missed tackles last year, which is just seven less of Ramondre Stevenson. So obviously, we know he's not the same guy that he once was. He was at one point one of the better running backs of the NFL. But you already parted ways with James Robinson. Ty Montgomery, who is more of a pass-catching back anyway, he's been banged up. So basically, you have Pierre Strong, Kevin Harris, and J.J. Taylor. So there's not a lot of depth at that position. And 
Like I said a couple of weeks ago, I just want to feed Ramondre. I've made that abundantly clear. But if you look at this Patriots team, I believe you do need to add some depth there. And we've seen them, right? They've been active in terms of looking at these veteran running backs. Because knock on wood, what if Ramondre Stevenson goes down with some sort of injury for an extended period of time? We don't wish that to happen, but that is a possibility, right? This is the NFL. The Patriots last season were at 25 rushing attempts per game. That was just 22nd. And the recipe to being successful offensively, going back to 2021, Mac Jones' rookie season, that number was at 28.3, which was the ninth highest in the NFL. So they went from running the ball, the ninth most in the NFL, to 22nd in the NFL. So I'm looking at the Patriots and how they're going to be successful. You have to get back to pounding the football, right? And one of the many problems for this Patriots offense last year was they didn't extend drives, right? If you look at it just in terms of time of possession, 2905, which was 26. Two years ago, they were at 14th at the NFL at 30-24. So they went from the upper half of the league in terms of time of possession to the bottom of the league. They were just 5.4 plays per drive last season. That was 29th in the NFL. So their drives were extremely short, right? We all remember it. It shouldn't surprise you that number is that low. In 2022, they were at 6.2 in terms of their plays per drive. That was 12th. So 12th in plays per drive to 29th last season. So in order for this team to get back to that level of functionality, if you will, if that's a word, functionality, they need to have that rushing volume be in the top 10. And what we saw last year is when you have sort of to deal with the predictability of Mac Jones throwing the football right when it's third and long, the offense could not come through, right? Mac's not the type of quarterback that can consistently, not a lot of guys can, but can consistently be living in third and six. And he's also not the type of quarterback where you say, hey, Mac, we'll just put you in the gun and go to work. He's not that type of guy. He's dependent on his teammates. He's dependent on the scheme. He's dependent on the running game, okay? So if you were to have an injury to Ramondre, you're not going to feel comfortable having one of those other backs in there. Now, maybe eventually you get to that point, but you're not comfortable right now with one of those backs. And secondarily, then you turn into the offense that Mac Jones has to throw the ball all over the field. So I just think that that's why we see Delvin Cook in here, Leonard Fournette in here, and we'll see if Delvin Cook ends up with the Jets by the time you listen to this podcast. But they know they need to be a high-volume rushing team to be successful or else they're porked, right? So when you look at it from that perspective, the more and more you think about it, it does make a ton of sense that they've been in the market for these veteran guys, right? Where it's like, well, we have to plan for it for Mondre's going down because... We, didn't, we had Damian Harris last year. Like, we had a good thing going where we had two of those guys. Obviously, Damian Harris goes to the Buffalo Bills, but you need Ramondre insurance. And the other thing is, this could help Ramondre not wear down at the end of the season, which obviously was an issue at the end of last season because they didn't trust anybody else. All right, the one additional thing I'll mention besides Harris, but the one, and he was dealing with injuries throughout the year. The one additional thing I'll mention is they really need to land one of these guys just so it's not an embarrassment because how many guys are we going to hear the Patriots are in on? Hopkins, they get outbid by Tennessee, right? And then you start to think about some of these other guys. Delvin Cook is another guy that was here. Leonard Fournette, like all these guys are coming to visit and none of them are landing contracts with the Patriots. It's just, it's kind of embarrassing from a Patriot perspective, right? All right, I did want to mention this because Mike Reese in a Sunday column wrote that Hunter Henry has once again been Mac Jones's biggest target in the red zone, okay? And I say once again, because remember that was the case during the 2021 season. So if you look at it, He sort of gets lost in the shuffle because last year, one of the big themes we had on the podcast after the game was where the fuck was Kendrick Bourne, right? So sometimes Hunter Henry just kind of get lost in the shuffle. And 
it wasn't like Hunter Henry where Kendrick Bourne was in the doghouse. Like this was like a crazy storyline. It just, you didn't see the same level of production from Hunter Henry. And I don't think it was Hunter Henry's fault. It was more about the scheme and Matt Patricia, et cetera. But Hunter Henry last season, he actually played a higher percentage of the snaps than he did two years ago. He went from 68% of the snaps in 2021 up to 76% in the 2022 season. But he went from nine touchdowns in 2021 down to just two in 2022. And he was targeted 59 times in 2022 compared to 75 in 2021. So down what, like 21% in terms of the targets. So if you look at how he was involved in 2021, he averaged 9.2 yards before reception in the 2022 season. That number was at 7.5. So what that means is they were scheming him up. Now, part of that, too, is Mac Jones, the drop back percentage at a play action, 26% compared to 16%. So it's a play action. It's quick pass over the seam to a guy like Hunter Henry. That's part of it, too. The scheme has everything to do with this as well. But that 9.2 was the highest of his career. So they were scheming him open. We see 9.2 yards prior to the catch, prior to the reception. That means they're scheming them open, unlike last year, where you could say, well, Brian, they really weren't scheming anybody open, and I can understand why you would say that. Okay, so if you look at 2021, 12.4 yards per reception, eighth among tight ends. Okay, in 2022, that was the same number, 12.4, it ended up being ninth. But then if you look at the touchdowns, we mentioned it was nine, that was third. This past season, it was two touchdowns tied for 27th among tight ends. The rating when targeted was at 112.8. That was 12th among tight ends. That's a really high number, right? Like you were efficient when you were throwing the ball to Hunter Henry. That number dipped to 102.7 this past season. So you dropped off about 10 points and that was 16th among tight ends. And then the third downs was the big one, right? We talk about this team has to be better on third down. Part of that is being in more manageable third down situations. But if you go back to 2021, he had 35 first downs, which was 12th best among tight ends. This past season, he had just 23, which is tied for 22nd. So down 12 from the prior season. So with Henry, we can sometimes forget about how useful he was for Mac Jones. And just learning that he's being more involved for Mac Jones is huge because two of the other guys, if you look at two guys he had chemistry with in 2021, Hunter Henry and Kendrick Bourne. You basically just took the Kendrick Bourne club out of the bag last year for Mac because he had issues with Matt Patricia and It was something that happened before the season and he was in the doghouse basically all season long. And then the other guy that just sort of had a good chemistry with Mac and it's just unfortunate because the scheme situation, Patricia, all this different type of stuff, he just wasn't heavily involved like he was two years ago. So those two guys that you were depending on, they just weren't there for you. And you can blame the coaching and whatnot, but I'm just happy to see that, okay, Hunter Henry's more involved as training camps getting underway now. He's more involved in the red zone stuff because that's an area he can help and he can also help in the middle of the field. Like, In 2021, I thought Hunter Henry was a good player for them. And I thought that he'd have a really good second year as well. And unfortunately, he just wasn't productive. And I know this is sort of a theme when we talk about the Patriots, but I can't even just look at Hunter Henry and say it was his fault. I don't think it was his fault at all. I didn't watch games and be like, oh, Hunter Henry's playing like shit. No, it's like, well, can they throw Hunter Henry the ball every once in a while? So this is definitely a good sign. All right. Another thing is this weird situation brewing with Matthew Judon and his contract. So he was asked about it because he's not been a full participant at training camp. He was asked about his contract by the media, and he said, I'm definitely not going to talk contract with y'all. Y'all are snitches, okay? <laughs> so my buddy Andrew Callahan suggested that they could add another year to the contract at $17 million, and basically he wrote this in the Herald, if you haven't seen it yet, $8 million in guarantee. So basically give him one more year at the end of his contract. He has two years. He has this year and next year on the deal right now. 
So that 2025 season, if you give him the extension like Callahan suggests, that would be his 33-year-old season. Okay, so last two years, he's at 12 and a half sacks and he's at 15 and a half sacks. And this year, he was better down the stretch than he was. Remember, two years ago, he just disappeared. And part of that was he's playing more snaps than he had in Baltimore, but he seemed to handle it better this past season. But if you look at it, he would then be signed through 2025. That 2025 would be his 33-year-old season, as I mentioned. And so if you're looking at like, well, how does he project? Well, he has played every game the past two seasons. So I do feel like this is a guy that keeps himself in really good shape. He's never really had significant injuries. Even going back to his days in Baltimore, he was always playing in a ton of games. Now, the snap total wasn't like it was in New England because he's become more of a star here with the Patriots than he was with Baltimore. So I'm not concerned about the injury situation. And I would argue that he was better last season than he was two seasons ago when he's older, right? So I think he's actually going to age pretty well for a guy that plays that edge position. Now, I could see why the Patriots would not want to extend it because at some point you're looking at the whole philosophy and Callahan mentions this in his article in terms of getting rid of a player a year too early than a year too late. And Bill's always sort of done that. And a lot of times he's been right about it. I mean, think about JC Jackson, how banged up he was when they let him go. It proved out to be, okay, they were actually right about that particular situation. But lawyer Malloy, you bring in Rodney Harrison, Rodney Harrison was an upgrade. So I understand all that. But if you look at it, this is why he's upset, not upset, but this, and look, he said he wants to spend his whole career here. And it doesn't seem like this is like a big issue, but Right now, he's at $13.6 million on average in terms of his salary. That's 20th among edge players, according to Over the Cap. And he's outplayed a lot of those guys. Like, if you look at Chandler Jones, he's making $17 million. <laughs> And Chandler had that great play last year. <laughs> I guess he made $17 million for that one play because he hasn't been the same guy. If you look at last year, he had four and a half sacks compared to 15 and a half for Judon. So here's the thing that I would say. You're not paying many guys long term. And Judon has sort of become a face of the organization in some sense. He's definitely, I think we can all agree on this, he's definitely become a leader of this team. And you just don't want to start the season and get deeper into training camp, even deeper into training camp, I should say, than the start of the season, where you have one of your best players unhappy. And I'm not saying it's at this point right now, but if it's one extra year at the end of the contract, that's not even that much. Like what Callahan's suggesting is a fine contract for, it's one extra year for Matthew Judon. And if that makes him happy, I would certainly do that because you do want this guy to be one of the leaders of the team as he's been in the past because he does play with a lot of energy. He, to use the Alex Cora cliche we used the other day, he posts every day. He's out there every game and he's had a really good tenure here as a member of this Patriots team. It's not like you have a lot of other guys to give massive contracts to. So I would just do it if it keeps the player happy and if he's happy. I would do this if I was Bill Belichick and company. Just get him signed long term or not even long term. Get him signed for one extra year. And then he's happy, right? He's signed through the 2025 season at 33. All right, I have one other Patriots-related question here or thought, and that is, does Josh McDaniels care about winning this year, okay? And I'm not saying that it's like a bad thing because I actually think it may be the right move to lose. But the Raiders, by the way, they still owed John Gruden $4 million at the time of his firing, or $40 million, I should say. <laughs> $4 million wouldn't be that much. $40 million at the time of his firing. So the Raiders, remember, they moved on from Derek Carr, and I'm the biggest fan of Jimmy Garoppolo, who they bring in, who's not the most durable guy in the world. He did recently get cleared. But Jimmy last year played in just 10 games. He was hurt in 2020. And we know he got hurt in 2018 with San Francisco as well after the 2017 season where he was traded there. So it's like every year something's going on with Jimmy from a health perspective. And I know they traded for Devontae Adams last year. But if you think about it, this was before... Josh McDaniels determined that Derek Carr wasn't good at football. Remember this whole situation where 
He wanted to play for the Raiders, Devontae Adams, because he grew up a Raiders fan. And also, Derek Carr is his buddy. So he wanted to play with Derek Carr. So when you traded for him, at least I would assume that Josh McDaniels thought that Derek Carr was good. When he got there, he soured on Derek Carr, especially as the season went on. So if you look at this, if you look at the Raiders in the AFC, how many teams can you guarantee that they're better than, right? Nobody in the East, the Bills, the Dolphins, the Jets, the Patriots, nobody in the North, the Bengals, the Ravens, the Steelers, and the Browns. Like, I mean, the Steelers, I don't love their quarterback situation, but nonetheless, I mean, you can't guarantee that the Raiders are better than anybody in that division. Okay, the Texans maybe, and the Colts maybe with a rookie in Minshew. Denver could be better this season in terms of what we saw last year. Maybe Russell Wilson figures it out under Deshaun Payton. Now, I'm not betting on that. But really, if you say definitively, it's like two teams. And you play in a division with the Chargers and the Chiefs. Those are four easy losses you're looking at right now. Even if, like, we look at the Chargers, they've been poorly coached on offense the past couple of years. If Kellen Moore can get that to be a competent offense, they're losing those games too, right? And remember, they also play the AFC East, which, of course, the Patriots, the Bills, the Jets, the Dolphins. And look, I look at this and I'm thinking to myself, do I want to suck and get Caleb Williams or Luke May because they didn't draft a quarterback last year? They had the seventh overall pick. And look, maybe they didn't feel like it was worth the haul to get in front of Indy because maybe they just didn't really like Richardson. Who knows? But maybe they looked at the schedule and said, Let's suck in 2023 and start to try to get a quarterback next year and build off that. Because McDaniels may look at it and be like, well, hold on. They're not going to fire me, right? They just hired me. I don't think they're going to fire me. And they're still paying John Gruden. This is not a wealthy organization. This is this is like the family business for Mark Davis. He's not like David Tepper or any of these guys that have all this money or like Steve Ballmer in the NBA. He is. This is his business. The team is his business. And Josh can also look at it and look at his defense and say, okay, We were 26 in scoring percentage against last season, 40.8%. Team scored on 40.8% of their drives against the Raiders. They were 27th in yards per play at 5.8. They were 32nd, dead last in passer rating, 98.8. Guys had a 98.8 passer rating against them. 29th in passing yards per game at 242.9, 29th. 30th in completion percentage against at 67.6. I mean, these are phenomenal numbers, right? I actually think that this could be smart by Josh if he just tanks. And another thing that I would look at, I alluded to this Devontae Adams situation, is I know he was saying all the right things. His team is saying, oh, there's nothing to him wanting to be part of the Jets. But Rodgers just restructured his contract, saving the Jets about $35 million, which nobody saw this coming with Rodgers of all people. And if you look at the cap hits, 8.9 this year, 17.2 next year. And then for the Jets in 2025, that goes up to 51.5. And it's like one of those weird contracts. But nonetheless, it's going to be on the books. So... The Jets have to win now, right? And people connecting the dots here, the Jets and the Raiders, and I get it, Adams Camp is calling this garbage, but he makes 14.7 against the cap this year, 25.3 next year, and then he has a potential, or they have a potential out in the contract. But if you're the Jets and you're like, well, you know what? We basically need to win, and we have two years to do it, right? I mean, look at Tom Brady basically had a two-year window there. And I know he was good this past season. He was really good this past season. But they basically had a two-year window before things fell apart, right? Because that was a really expensive team with everybody they were paying. They started to pay the defense. They were paying the receivers. So that team got really expensive really fast. And by the time, and they were dealing with all types of injuries too to their offensive line, by the time this year rolled around, they made it to the playoffs, but they weren't a good team, right? Like they shouldn't have been in the playoffs that the rules were a little bit different. But you get the point is it was basically a two-year window with Brady. Based on the contract that Rodgers has now, it's basically a two-year window. So if you're the Jets, 
you know, like, okay, things went perfectly for the Bucks in year one, like a- after Brady sort of figured it out there and they made this deep run. But the Jets are in a situation where it's like they have what, like $15.9 million according to over the cap right now. If I'm the Jets, I'd be trying to do this right now. And I get it. They have Garrett Wilson, but the combo of Garrett Wilson and Devontae Adams, Aaron Rodgers as your recruiter. I mean, you could easily like look at the situation and say, why wouldn't we do it if we're the Jets? You're all in right now. It's not like you have the next decade with Rodgers. You basically have a two-year window. Just give yourself the best chance. And the other thing I would look at in terms of this Devontae Adams thing, I think McDaniels, if he gets rid of Adams, we'll have to see like what you can get back in return, right? Because when you traded for him, you gave up a first and a second. And basically that's a lost cause, right? Because you traded for him. You didn't make the playoffs last year. You're not making the playoffs this year. So what can you get back in return? That's obviously something where him and Dave Ziegler will have to try to save face when it comes to that particular situation. But if you're McDaniels, it makes way more sense this season to lose than to win. And I'm not saying teams go out there and blatantly try to lose. But what you want to do is sort of build up your resources because they don't have a lot of talent on defense. Outside, And who knows what's going on with this Josh Jacobs situation. You don't have a franchise quarterback going forward. And offensively, your best player eventually is not going to be there any anymore. You might as well move on from your best player as well and just try to get more draft capital suck and try to get into the one, two range of the draft so you can get one of these top tier kids. So the other component to this is we know the familiarity with the Patriots and the Raiders with Dave Ziegler and with Josh McDaniels. If you're the Patriots, I think you at least got to be involved in this thing, right? And and we'll see what happens with Adams, whether they actually put him on the block. It doesn't feel like they're going to do that. But what if they did it at the trading deadline or at some point he just becomes unhappy? You never know when these things are going to go south. If you look at him last year, 1,506 yards. He had 14 touchdowns, which was first among receivers. And he's still an elite player. I mean, they targeted him 168 times. Only Justin Jefferson and Tyreek Hill were targeted more. So if you're the Patriots, you should be involved if he becomes available. Because really right now, if you look at it, you were outbid in the DeAndre Hopkins situation. And unfortunately, you know how I felt about that situation. I just feel like If the Patriots do get involved in this, like for Devontae Adams, they'll get outbid, right? Because they'll look at the contract and they'll say, okay, we're not giving up draft capital for a guy with that size of a contract. So as optimistic as I can be personally saying, hey, if Devontae Adams actually gets put on the market, the Patriots should go after him. Don't see it happening. Because also with Adams too, you got to figure out this. And this is kind of what sucks about the Jets having Rodgers now. Devontae Adams is going to be miserable playing for another team, right? Where it's not a contender. And if he really wants to get back with Rodgers, he's not going to be happy going to the Patriots. So the Jets are now in the spot where they have sort of this power in the marketplace because they have Aaron Rodgers, right? And it's sort of like what we had with the Patriots for so long as Patriots fans were like, okay, that free agent's available, he's coming to the Patriots. And now with this Devontae Adams thing, I really hope he doesn't request a trade because that means he's going to the Jets. Now, from Josh McDaniel's perspective, this would be the right thing to do. Hey, you said their quarterback sucked and Derek Carr, the guy you inherited, you're bringing your guy as a stopgap suck this season and go get the best guy in the draft of the second best guy if it's Luke May, if you have the number two pick. But the Raiders, I think this is the first team to look at and say, yeah, they're tanking, baby. They're tanking. All right, a lot more coming up, including coming up next, I'll get into my top five Boston athletes to watch since the turn of the century. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, You should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, 
inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So now it is time to unveil my list of the top five Boston athletes to watch since the turn of the century. Okay, so I want to be abundantly clear and preface this by saying, this is my favorite guys to watch. This is not, I'm not ranking where they are. Like obviously one, two, three, four, five. I'm not ranking where they rank in terms of their role here in Boston or their play in Boston. I'm just saying my top five favorite guys to watch since the turn of the century, right? Like there are guys that would be on this list if it was just the best five guys since the turn of the century. Like David Ortiz would be on this list. And not to give too much away, he's not on this list for me, okay? But- that's sort of a different conversation. This is just my favorite five guys to watch since the turn of the century. So you may listen to my list and say, Brian, you're an idiot, but you can't really be wrong with this type of list. And if you guys want to email or leave us a voicemail, you certainly can critiquing my list or giving your top five. But this is my list. So I cannot be wrong with this list. Number one, I still had to go with Tom Brady. How could you not? Right. I mean, this is pretty self-explanatory. The six Super Bowls and the unbelievable comebacks. And Brady was an unbelievable guy to watch, too. Right. The only thing about Tom is, or the best thing about Tom is no matter what, you felt like you still had a chance to win the game. And that's like the best feeling you can ever have as a sports fan. Oh, we're down two touchdowns in the fourth quarter against the Seahawks. Eh, no problem. Hey, we're down 28 to three. Well, maybe that one's a little bit exaggerated. I don't think many people feel comfortable they were coming back from 28 to three, but you get my point. 2014, down two touchdowns to Baltimore twice, and they come back and win that game, right? So you always feel like you had a chance with Tom, and that was sort of the magical time of that era is you had that guy at the quarterback position. But some of the random stuff I love too with Tom, like if you remember going back to the undefeated season of 2007, remember when Anthony Smith basically got in his face or Anthony Smith said prior to the game that they were going to end the streak for the Patriots of the Steelers, the safety, and actually went to my alma mater, Syracuse. But nonetheless, he said this before the game. So Tom Brady throws a bomb to Randy Moss. It was like a 60-yard touchdown pass. Tom sprints, beelines down the field to yell and taunt Anthony Smith. Like, that shit's awesome. That just shows you what a competitor Tom Brady was. The Falcons come back. The Seahawks come back. The first Rams victory. Remember that Super Bowl with John Madden saying they should play for overtime? And Bill shows the trust in Tom. They go down the field. They win that game. But just the storylines where, remember, Tom told Robert Kraft famously that this is the best decision this organization 
has ever made. So just the default is Brady. I mean, that was, we got to do this for 20 years, watching this guy every Sunday, and most of the time he won. And basically for what, an eight-year stretch in the last decade, they played in the AFC Championship game every year. Like, you could set your clock to it. Hey, get ready for the AFC Championship game. And that's sort of how we determine, is this season a failure or a success? Do they win the AFC Championship game? Do they not win the AFC Championship game? So just Brady, all those big moments, like most organizations don't get to experience as many playoff games in the history of their organization that the Patriots did. We did it with one guy for 20 years. Just unbelievable. So Brady, by default, was number one. And like like one of the things that I think sort of gets underrated with Brady is just how quick the release was, right? I mean, he just got rid of the ball so quickly. So Brady, by far, number one. Number two on my list. Remember, favorite athletes to watch since the turn of the century Pedro Martinez, and I know a lot of what he did was prior to the turn of the century, but (laughs) that window in the early 2000s, he was still incredible. 99, of course, is when he won the Triple Crown of Pitching, but if you go after that, 2000, that may have been his best season, right? 174 ERA, that was the lowest AL ERA since 1978, okay? And that's when everybody was on fucking roids. Pedro had a 174 ERA in the year 2000. He, of course, won the Cy Young that year. Okay, his 0.74 whip in 2000 broke an 87-year-old modern major league pitching record during the steroid era, okay? And then you look at it, guys hit 167 against him with a 213 on base percentage. Those were records that year. Unreal stuff. He was the first pitcher to have more than twice as many strikeouts in a season than hits allowed. Now, a couple of guys have done it since him. Randy Johnson did it one year. Max Scherzer, who we talked about earlier, did it one year. Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander both did it with the Astros. But there's been five guys that have done it in the history of the sport, okay? He did have the injury in 2001, but then he was elite again in 02, where he was 20-4 and with a 2.26 ERA. And I know, like, nowadays we say, like, Pitching wins aren't that important. I totally understand that because we see teams, hey, we don't want this guy to face the order for the third time and all that different type of stuff. Like, I totally understand all that. But when Pedro was pitching, wins were important. And the fact that they were 20 and four, that's pretty incredible, right? Okay. But then you start to look at this, like, the other portion of Pedro in terms of why I say he's one of my top five favorite athletes to watch in Boston since the turn of the century. He was must-see TV. He was appointment television, right? He's the closest, well, I should say, the closest thing we've had to him in terms of starting pitching is Chris Sale in 17 and 18. Because Sale, remember when Sale first came over in 17, he was incredible. The 300 strikeout season, like, he was unreal. And then 18, he was unreal until the injuries started to pile up and maybe the 300 strikeouts weren't worth it because ever since that point, the guy's been dealing with injuries. But nonetheless, and look, Sale was probably eventually going to get hurt anyway because he's so slim and he's the... Motion is so violent. There's so many moving parts. But you get my point. It's like sale for like a year and a half was the closest thing we had to Pedro. And it really wasn't even close to Pedro. Pedro was, he had all this flair and you didn't want to miss it, right? He had the elite fastball. I mean, known for the uh, nasty changeup. I mean, lefties for their career hit 223 against it, against him because he had that changeup. And remember, we as sort of Red Sox fans had dealt with the loss of Roger Clemens and getting over that to the point where, okay, this guy comes in right away and takes over that mantle and is more entertaining, right? Like, he was more into dealing with the fans than Roger Clemens was. And nothing against Roger. He wanted to go out there. He wanted to do his job. Pedro wanted to entertain you. And that's what he was. He was an entertainer. So Pedro, number two on my list, behind Brady. I actually considered putting Pedro in front of Brady because he was just so fun to watch. But 
you can't take out the 20 years with Brady. Okay. Number three on my list. This is where it kind of got difficult. Like my first two are very easy for me to determine. Pedro and Brady, that was easy. Number three, Rob Gronkowski. There was nobody like Gronk. Remember, he gets drafted in the second round out of Arizona because he's dealing with back injuries coming out of the collegiate level. And as we saw, he dealt with back injuries at the NFL level as well. But remember, he's on the stage with his brothers putting on the Patriots helmet and they're going nuts. And you're like, what's up with this guy? To the point where they call him, the Patriots call him and tell him he needs to calm down. This is how like we met Rob Gronkowski as Patriots fans. Like, oh, whoa, this guy is going to fit in. He's crazy. Bill's like, hey, uh, Rob, can you tone it down a little bit? But that was our initial impression of this guy. He put his body on the line every week. I mean, the guy took massive hits. But remember, second year in the NFL. The Gronk spike starts in his rookie year, but in the second year, that's where it's like, okay, 17 touchdowns that set the record for tight ends. He went over 1,200 yards that season, which was six in receiving yards, and he was a tight end. And remember, like, the anticipation that year when he went to spike the ball. Everybody at Gillette went nuts, and we went nuts if you're just watching on TV, just seeing Gronk spike the ball because it meant he got back into the end zone again. He just had all these moments, too, right? I mean, remember... In 2014, the Patriots are playing the Indianapolis Colts, and he literally blocked Sergio Brown 10 yards off the field. He ended up getting a penalty for that, remember? He was flagged, and he said after the game that he had to throw him out of the club. Of course, Sergio Brown, former Patriot, but that's just the stuff he did. He just threw the, he just threw him 10 yards. Like He's blocking him like into the crowd almost, and remember the Yo Soy Fiesta? He had that thing going. He goes nuts at the parades. He's just like... He was really relatable. We all loved Rob Gronkowski, right? And if you think about this too, in 14, he was coming off injuries. And in that game against the Bears, he had 149 yards and three touchdowns. And remember, he had that ridiculous one-handed catch where you're like, oh shit, he's back. And that's when he started turning into the Gronk that we had seen pre-injuries. And of course, the rest is history. The Patriots won the Super Bowl that particular season. But even his last game as a Patriot had a ridiculous catch to seal the victory. Remember where... Brady drops it in the bucket. Gronk makes this ridiculous catch to set up the game-winning score, or not the game-winning score, to make sure it was a two-possession game at that particular point in time. But Gronk was unreal, man. I mean, the, he's just so fun to watch. 6'6", 265 pounds, and nobody could tackle him. And the thing about Gronk is his hands were so good. It just felt like when Gronk caught the ball, the ball stopped in his hands. Like, you see receivers sometimes, like, they bobble a little bit. It just, like, the ball, like, stuck to his hands. It was really unbelievable to watch. He's like a transformer out there. And then, of course, as we mentioned, the vintage spike, he never dropped anything. And I think the thing that we appreciate now, I know it didn't end well with the Patriots, right, in terms of his brother went on EI and said that Gronk was paid like a mediocre tight end, which it wasn't true. I mean, he, at the time that he signed the contract, he was the highest paid tight end in the NFL. Then a couple of guys passed him. So it wasn't accurate. He had the whole issue with the Detroit Lions situation where Bill had a deal done for him. So I get it didn't end well. But man, he gave everything he could from a body-wise perspective to the organization. Okay, number four on this list. Okay, now this is where I think people are going to be upset about number four on my list. Because it's not like he played for a long time in Boston. But it was just so unique where I have to put him on the list. And remember, this is my list. My top five favorite guys to watch in the turn of, since the turn of the century in Boston. IT. Isaiah Thomas, the king of the fourth. Okay, for a couple of reasons here. So, 
And I know you're saying, well, Brady, Pedro, Gronk, Isaiah Thomas, right? Like, wait, wait, how is he on this list with Brady, Gronk, and Pedro? But remember, it's the entertainment factor. And I just remember when the Celtics traded away a first-round pick for Isaiah Thomas. I was thinking at the time, like, what are they doing? Like, we're on this rebuilding thing, right, where they trade, they had traded away Garnett and Pierce, and they're acquiring all these draft picks. Why are they trading for Isaiah Thomas? But... And he's a small, diminutive point guard. What's the point of this? I think that you got to give Danny Ainge a lot of credit because he saw the value in the player that he was being underutilized in Phoenix. Because remember, at that particular point in time, they had the three guards. Isaiah Thomas was coming off the bench. They had Eric Bledsoe and they had Goran Dragic. So it's like he was sort of the odd man out there. They needed to move on from one of those guys. And Danny saw the value in Isaiah. And I give him credit because he was clearly right. And then if you go to 2016, 2017, that's where he goes off. 28.9 points per game. He had 37.9% of his threes. He took 8.5 a game. And remember, that 28.9 points per game in the 16-17 season, that was third in the NBA. This guy was 5'9", and he was the third leading scorer in the NBA, and he made an all-NBA team. He started out that season 20 or more points in 20 of the first 21 games. And the whole king of the fourth thing, that was awesome. And he deserved that nickname. He was unbelievable in the fourth quarter. Remember, he had that game against Miami where he scored 52 points. He had 29 in the fourth quarter. And then the playoff run. I mean, remember what this guy went through. He unfortunately had the tragedy. His sister passed away. And then he played in the game and he got his tooth knocked out. And he didn't miss a game during that whole playoff run with all that going on. He had 33-9 and in a game against the Wizards after getting the dental work, right, where he played the next game after he had the tooth issue. He had 53 points in game two against Washington. He was just unbelievable. Now, it didn't end well. We all know what happened with the trade, and unfortunately, the hip injury and the Kyrie thing never worked out, and it was unfortunate that that was like the last great basketball Isaiah Thomas played because he gave it all to the Celtics organization playing through that hip situation. But I just remember how awesome that time was. He was five foot nine. Five foot nine. I, I know I keep saying his height, but he was five foot nine. And he's having these 30 point games. And it was just incredible to watch. I mean, they beat the Washington Wizards. And I know we say all oh, the Wizards are a joke. Like Wall and Beal were good at that time. That was a good Washington team. The Celtics did, uh, from a talent perspective, and look, they had the better coach, obviously, with Brad Stevens. They shouldn't have won that series. And Isaiah Thomas was so good for that team. He lived up to those moments. And just watching him do it, it's like, We don't see this in the NBA, right? Like even Steph Curry, who's small for NBA standards, he's six foot three. Isaiah Thomas is five foot nine and he's going out there and he's putting up 30 points. And it just, I don't want to say he's relatable because obviously most of us could never play in the NBA, right? But he's a five foot nine guy. It's just something special watching him play. And just, he had unbelievable moments as I alluded to some of these big moments in the postseason. I think we as Celtics fans knew that there was a limitation. He was never going to be the best player on a championship team. But we had gone from, okay, KG and Pierce competing for championships to, hey, what are they going to be until they get this next group, the Tatum, the Jalen Browns, until they land these draft picks? What are they going to be? And Isaiah Thomas was the identity of that team for a couple of years. And it was incredibly fun to watch. I had so much fun watching those teams play. And Brad Stevens built the entire offense around him. He built the defense around him too because they had to hide him at times defensively. But that time was just... We should not have been having fun as Celtics fans during that time, right? Like, think about all these other organizations that are going through these massive rebuilds, right, where they're acquiring all these draft picks. Now, I guess you could say, like, the Thunder are having some fun now, and we'll see if they make a playoff push this season. They got a lot of young talent. 
But the Celtics are actually like doing this and they were going into the postseason, which is pretty remarkable to think about it. And the luxury they had is like they knew, hey, it doesn't matter what our record is, right? Because we're getting Philly's picks. So we're relying on Philadelphia at that particular point in time. So that Isaiah Thomas era, and maybe I'm just overrating it, but I had so much fun. I know it was a short window, but I had so much fun watching that guy play. All right. And 5'9". Can I say it again? Five foot nine in the NBA, averaging north of 28 per game. Unbelievable. Okay, number five on my list. This is like a really tough one for me to like pick five because I'll get to my honorable mentions in a second here. But I went with Kevin Garnett. So I know Pierce was the mainstay, but Pierce never really had, and I kind of alluded to this when I was talking about the Dwayne Wade situation. He never really had that flashy game, right? Where Pierce is a great player. Don't Don't get me wrong. But it wasn't like, hey, it, like it's not like one of these where it's like Vince Carter doing crazy dunks or it's like hey uh Steve Nash doing crazy things right or Allen Iverson doing crazy things right and it, P- Pierce is a good player but he wasn't like an unbelievable watch at least from my perspective you may disagree on that and I love Pierce great player and all that I just I don't think he was an unbelievable watch and KG to me he was just he was bizarre right that's part of the experience right when I talk about the entertainment the most entertaining players that I watched the most fun I had watching KG was like a psycho he was a weirdo and I didn't really know all this about KG before he came over. Obviously, we all knew the pedigree. He was a great player. He was a former MVP, perennial all-star, all that. But we only saw him a couple of times, right? Because it's not like Minnesota's on national TV. And he only came to Boston, what, once a year. And if you look at the first year he had with the Celtics when they won the championship, the impact metrics are off the charts. So this is via cleaning the glass. The Celtics that year, when Kevin Garnett was on the court for the Celtics, They outscored teams by 16.9 points per 100 possessions, the best mark in the NBA. So basically, KG on the court, you're outscoring the opponent by 17 points. Think about how crazy that is. And what it was is he was the anchor of the defense. Like the numbers weren't crazy. He averaged like 18 and nine that season. But the culture completely changed. Like when he first came over, I remember I just loved all these commercials where it was like Garnett, Pierce, and Ray Allen, like on ESPN or SportsCenter or whatever it was, like trying to come up with nicknames. But immediately, Garnett sort of changed everything in terms of we knew he was a great defensive player and he won Defensive Player of the Year his first year here. But the Celtics were on it from day one on defense. And we always talk about Ray Allen sacrificing with this team. Garnett went from 17.6 shots per game down to 13.9. So he sacrificed a lot, too, because he said, I got to be the anchor of this defense. This is going to be my thing. I'm going to run the defense. And he certainly did. Yeah, the anything is possible moment at the end of the finals. Like, that was crazy. Just all the emotion he let out. And remember, he dominated Paul Gasol in that 08 finals. Now, different story in 2010 where you could argue Gasol should have been the finals MVP. But nonetheless, I don't want to relitigate that. But the reason that Gasol wasn't good in 08 was KG. And it was just, he was so competitive that he did these, like, bizarre things. Like, I just remember stuff that I've never seen before in a basketball court. There was a game, I remember they were playing the Portland Trailblazers. And... Jared Bayless was bringing the ball up to court and KG like legitimately got down on the ground and started barking at him. Like, what is this guy doing? And he'd do this weird stuff too, where he'd hit himself with the, in the head with the ball. He'd hit his head on like underneath the hoop area there. He'd do push-ups. Like he was just wild. And he started that whole thing in the NBA where you don't allow guys to shoot after the whistle. Remember like this, every team does this in the league. Now you just go up and you grab the ball before it goes in. KG used to do that. My only thing is I wish he was here earlier. Like I wish we got to experience this for an extended period of time because basically we got one healthy year of KG, but that guy was just so damn entertaining to watch, obviously. And I know Pierce is the MVP of the finals. By far, Kevin Garnett was the most important player on that team. 
He was the best player on that team. And I've just never seen some of the stuff that he did on a basketball court. It's just weird, <laughs> odd behavior. And he's on the ground barking at a guy. Okay. So honorable mentions that I have on here, like, I didn't put any Bruins on there. I guess I could have put David Pasternak on there just because of how dangerous he is, especially this year. He's incredibly entertaining to watch. Tim Thomas, I almost put him on here because, remember, 2010-2011, he was outstanding. He won the Vesna that year. He broke Hasek's record for save percentage. He had set the record for the most saves in the postseason and set the record for the most saves in the Stanley Cup. Like, he was unreal. He won the Conn Smythe. And... It got weird after that with Tim Thomas. Like, the next year was fine, but by the time, what, 2013 rolls around, he's not with the team anymore, and he, he didn't have the longevity. And look, these guys have my list didn't have longevity either, but the 2011 run was awesome for Tim Thomas, so I certainly could have put him on the list. I didn't. If I was going to put a Bruin on the list, it would have been him over Pasta, and I know, just because of the entertainment factor, I know Bergeron was great, but I wouldn't, like, and he's the best defensive forward of his generation and all that, but I wouldn't say it's like, hey, Bergeron is watching Alexander Ovechkin, right? <laughs> or, you know, some of these other guys across the league. Cal McCarr now. It's not like watching one of those guys. It's it's not Connor McDavid, right? He's not like a super entertaining... Like, Pasta is a more entertaining player than Bergeron. Charo is a defenseman that wasn't really involved heavily in the offense. Great player, all that. Great penalty killer, all-time great Bruin. But if I was going to put one of the Bruins on there, it would have been Tim Thomas. I just sided with KG and in IT. I thought that was more unique. And the KG thing was just more about like the weird shit that he did. Okay, Red Sox, Ortiz, and Manny are obviously honorable mentions. Manny was entertaining as hell, not just because of how great of a hitter he was, but remember, he took a he was just missing in left field. He went to take a leak in the monster. He remember he cut off Johnny Damon's throw. Like just weird stuff on the field. Manny being Manny, that whole thing. The dude hit 349 with 33 bombs in 02. He hit 41 bombs in 2001. He hit 43 bombs in 04 and 45 in 05. Now, we would later find out that he was helped by some stuff. But nonetheless, it's tougher for me with a baseball player to put a positional guy in there, right? Because there are games where they may not be involved outside of four at-bats. And especially with Ortiz. Ortiz has the big, huge moments, but he only comes up to the plate four times a game. So it's tough for me to say, like, oh, this is one of the most entertaining guys for me to watch when he may be included in the game's action for like 30 seconds right so it's just it's just not like I, I can't put him ahead of Pedro Martinez or like some of these Celtics players that I mentioned on this list right it's just he doesn't play long enough same thing with Manny and even Mookie Mookie was unreal in 18 where he hit 346 28 defensive run save which or 18 defensive run save rather 20 would be a lot third best he was very entertaining but again the position player thing it's tough for me to put a position player in my top five, right? That's why I have Pedro, who controls the whole game. All right, Celtics-wise, there's a lot of guys. Pierce, as we mentioned, you could throw up there. Tatum's up there for me now, and I think if this is a couple of years from now, he would be up on this list. But his game is, it's its definitely entertaining, don't get me wrong, but it's not like, it's not super unique to the modern NBA, right? Like, it's not one of these things where, like, for example, Jokic at the center position, like, all the crazy passes he does. He's more entertaining than Tatum. Or, like, for example, and... Don't get me wrong, Tatum is way better than this guy. But Zion, like the explosion at that size, like we've never really seen that before in the NBA. So Tatum is a great player and all that, but I just couldn't put him over some of these other guys. Like IT was more entertaining than me than Tatum. Like Tatum is way better player than Isaiah Thomas was, but he just wasn't as entertaining as Isaiah Thomas was for that two-year stretch where it's the small guy scoring on all these big guys in the NBA. And the KG thing, that's just... 
KG is a weirdo, man, in all the right ways. I mean, some of the stuff he did in the court was unbelievable. All right, let's bring in producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, so you heard my top five list, top five most entertaining Boston athletes since 2000. And this is my favorite guys to watch. I preface this. This isn't my top five. So do you have a top five or do you have some gripes that you want to pick with me? What do you got here? I don't have many gripes, honestly. I thought it was a, a great list and... I love the IT pick. I had him on my honorable mentions list, but that was a ton of fun that year and the couple of years with him. So I love that you had him on there. Um, I think the only guy uh, that should have been at least mentioned is Randy, of course, in 07 and stuff. That's a good one. I, you know what? That's a good. That's that's a bad job by me. So I'm glad you brought that up because I would people would have been hating that. But yeah, Ran Randy's got to be Randy's mm -hmm. an honorable mention for me for sure. I I mean I went with Gronk over Randy just because. Yeah. And look, maybe you can say we never seen what Randy too. did either, but and that 07 thing was magical. But I, I got two Patriots represented. I got two Celtics and I got a Red Sox. So, yeah, Randy, you could make an argument for easily making an argument for Randy to be in the top five. But, yeah, I, I give Gronk the slight edge over him just because oh, yeah. he he played longer. And it's just that guy's a weirdo, man, too, just like Kevin Garnett and I don't know. He's just entertaining me too, like off off the field. You know what I mean? Yo soy fiesta. I remember he's making the sounds at the dirt bike thing, which Bill was not happy about. Like he lived his best uh, life, man. I I think you you hit upon something with his weirdos that are great players. You know that's the key. And Manny, of yeah. course, too, as you mentioned. Yeah, I get a couple of the other Patriots because I didn't mention the honorable mentions of the Patriots, but I would put Edelman in there because you mm -hmm. know he just he always got open. Rodney Harrison would be up there to me just because of the fact that he just delivered these crazy, crazy hits. I was listening to who said this story the other day. I forget who it was, but it was oh man, I saw it, it was it was on a podcast. So Rodney Harrison was like a Troy Brown caught a ball over the middle at practice like the first day, and Rodney Harrison just lit him up. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, okay, this guy is different. <laughs> yeah, like what the hell. <laughs> But yeah, Rodney would be on there. Ty, uh, yeah, Ty Law is a corner, so I mean, I guess he would be on this list as well. But yeah, that would be that would be probably my list for Patriots wise. Would be you got it. Randy would be the next guy if I had to put another Patriot sure. on the list. But I did love Rodney. Rodney was the best. Controversial one, Brian. What about uh, Kyrie Irving, Brian? I will say when Hayward you went got down. Some moves. Remember they had that stretch? I think there were like 19 and two to start the season, but that was, I there's way too much scar tissue there. He was entertaining. He didn't For even sure. last the whole year being that way. Remember <laughs> they got into the postseason and he was a mess. Totally. Remember like he was the so weirdest thing. getting to the basket. Yeah, oh my now, he's gosh. a great player. I, I mean, but he like quit on the team too before. Remember he had the nose Not job great. at one point. And then the thing was in the playoffs, he, he said like, remember he was like calling people off so he could guard Giannis. It's like, what? You're going to guard Giannis? Yeah. The one time you're going to try to play defenses against Giannis? I feel like that was almost self-sabotage. Team sabotage. Like, I'll cover Giannis. That way we can lose quicker. That's, uh, he was entertaining, though. Sure. I'll give you that. But it was only like a two-month period. And then he got hurt. And then he was a problem after that. Remember at the All-Star game, the two max contracts, all that? He was a problem. He's got the weird personality, but it's uh, a bad weird. Yeah. Um, trying to think of other guys. I got this one... I know this one's silly, but for some reason my brain just goes there. Jackie Bradley Jr. I just thought he was by far the most entertaining fielder of my entire life, you know? Couldn't hit the ball at all, but so smooth out there in center field. I mean, he was a great fielder, and I got a new appreciation for him last year when I was watching the games in the press boxes. It's, it's crazy to see how he navigates the field because mm -hmm. he just, like, runs to a spot. 
he has such a good idea of where the ball is going where he just like directly runs to the spot and he's always there like you don't see and look he's made him in the past you don't see him making a lot of diving catches because he's always there before the ball gets there like he doesn't have to dive but yeah he was entertaining in the field but i can't even put him close to the list because the guy couldn't <laughs> no, no, he know. couldn't hit a fucking beach ball dipped in the lcs although he was he was alcs mvp That's right. you gotta give him credit for that mookie if i was gonna put a position player oh, it yeah, would be manny sure. and it would be Manny first and Mookie second. Although, you know what? Rafi would probably be up there, too, just because... That's true. Like, he does all these faces in the box. I love when he does this thing where he just, like, lays down at second base. I don't know what he's doing when he does that. He, like, did, catch- it. he did it today, actually. Yeah, he loves that. He just lays down. It's, it's really weird, but... Yeah, Randy's a good call. Randy's a good call. I mean, Randy over KG is a good argument, like, because Randy was so good. He broke the record for touchdown receptions for any player. So, Randy's... I know. For sure. KG was just, man, I, I don't know. Like, I he you. just, like, he, like, completely changed the franchise. Because, remember, we went from the 80s where they were winning championships. And, of course, I didn't see any of it in the 80s. And then, of course, the 90s, you had the situation with Len Bias, which, of course, never played for the Celtics because he passed away. You had the Reggie Lewis situation. And they really never recovered in the 90s. And then you had this really bad Patino era that was just a complete dumpster fire. I talked about the Chauncey Billups trade a couple of weeks ago. Like, that just unforgivable like how do you give up on a guy that you selected third overall so it's such a mess for so long and it felt like going into that draft in 07 it's like here we go we're gonna get one of these two building blocks it's either gonna be Greg Oden or Danny Ainge now Danny Ainge apparently liked Kevin Durant more than Greg Oden right and whether or not that's true or not I know that he was like all in on Kate on Durant but the point being with why I'm bringing this up is in 07, it was like, okay, they're going to get one of these two guys. And it's like, oh my God, they didn't get one of the top two picks. What are they going to do? And then draft night comes around and it's like, wait, hold on. Ray Allen. What? Like, okay. Yeah. Like they'll be decent. Like Ray and Paul, right? Like that's, that's a playoff team. Mm -hmm. Ray Allen's one of the greatest shooters in NBA history. And Paul Pierce is a great score. Like that makes sense. But then when it was KG, you're like, oh, this is why they did. Because remember, KG didn't originally want to come here, right? I mean, back in the day, he wanted to go to the Suns, but he wanted to go to the Lakers. Like, he did not want to come to the Celtics. And eventually, I feel like getting Ray here was sort of the piece that gave the Celtics the ability to do that. And right away, it was like from day one, like, we thought, okay, maybe it's going to take these this team a while to mesh. It was like, no, they're the best yeah, team in the NBA, right out of the gate. Now, they did have their struggles in the postseason, which was weird against... Atlanta took them seven and Cleveland took them seven, right? They did beat Detroit in six and the Lakers in six. I think 09, they would have ran through the postseason. They were so good that particular season. But man, I don't know. I just, he's one of the, and I don't know how you measure this, but because yeah, I mean, this town's had Brady too, but he's one of the most competitive guys I've ever seen. Like yeah. that, that guy is the an absolute psycho. Unreal. All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. And hey, thanks for mentioning Randy because I would have got a lot of bad oh, heat on that one. Man. That catch he made over Darrell Revis that one time. Oh, my God. Yeah, and, he's, and Darrell Revis is holding this hamstring. The slouch. And the catch he made. Or remember when they did it on the same play, Brady and Randy against the Giants? Now, unfortunately, yeah, the Giants are coming. Yeah, I know. That was Giants had the last laugh there. Yeah, that was That crazy. was an amazing game. They were losing, yeah. too, I remember, basically. Yeah. He also had a catch low-key. It was, I think, against the Jets with Matt Castle, at quarterback. You remember this catch? He caught it in, like, the side of the end zone. It was, like, one of the craziest toe-tapping catches ever. Yeah. Remember Castle told us on the podcast that Randy would just like lift up his finger? Oh, ready. <laughs> yeah. You pass the defender, lift up his finger like, yeah, dude, throw it to me now. I mean, he had great numbers for the Patriots, but obviously that 08 year, if, if Brady hadn't gotten hurt, that would have been quite a run those three years. Yeah, it's another what if. 
I think he led the like, league in touchdowns, even with Matt Castle. That's another KG thing. Like, KG was never the same player after the knee injury in 09. Like, unfortunately for the Patriots, they were all in for those couple of years, had a ton of veteran players, and Brady comes back for 09. The team wasn't that good in 09 from a Yeah, that was like their worst team, basically. Yeah, that's they like they that made good. that what's it called that that documentary would. Yeah, Belichick yeah, that's exactly like, the year. Just doesn't have it. Yeah, but Randy did. Love, remember, Randy went into Bill's office in the NFL Films thing, and he that's told him, hey, we're, "Yeah, the Halloween, yeah, we're having a Halloween party." <laughs> Bill's, he's like, <laughs> he "I don't know if you and the coaches want to come," and he says, uh, <laughs> "Dressing up in candy, how can you beat that?" That's what Bill says. So Bill's a big Halloween guy. I agree with him. I like you know, Halloween. I don't know why Halloween gets a bad rap. I like Halloween, but I'm tired of the three the three costumes, you know, like a whole weekend thing. I'll do it once. Dress up once. Oh, again. yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. You don't have multiple costumes. Mm-mm. Can't afford it. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. All right. If you want to disagree with our list or give us your top five, you can leave us a voicemail at 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.